Hello and welcome back to Find the Outside the Podcast. It's lovely to have you back and to be back in your ears again. We're very excited to have Sean Rutland here with us today. Sean Rutland is the uh, co-founder of Hutch Games, which recently just sold. Is that correct? And then before that, you were you were working with Sony PlayStation as well, you know. But so in in the lead up to this, we've had some great conversations with Sean about the kind of creative company he's built and the post-acquisition experience. But we've kind of decided to dig a little bit into Sean's history today and get a little bit of his journey from being a young man all the way through to leading an incredibly successful games company. But as always, that is almost certainly an inadequate uh, introduction. Sean, how would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> thanks, thanks very much. Yeah, uh, I'm Sean Rutland. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Hutch. We're a mobile games company. We're based in London, Nova Scotia, and Dundee. Uh, we have about 160 employees. My role in the company originally kind of started as a classic kind of boss man, but emerged into someone that was more, I guess, servant leadership and, and really looked at my team to to support and help them and help them make better products instead of telling them what to do. And that's when we found our real success was actually watching them make games that they wanted to make um, instead of the games that wow. I believed in. So, um, so yeah, that was, a, that was the, that, that is my job. We sold about two years ago for an eye-watering amount of money, uh, which I still can't quite fathom how we did that. But <laughs> <laughs> I live in the UK and I'm from New Zealand, so you probably can pick up from my... Oh, awesome. Well, you know what? Like, I live in my home bay where there's a hutch office. One of my good mates is Dave Thompson, who I go out walking with regularly, you know, and hang out with. And and so uh, it's pretty amazing to hear his stories and his experience of living and working with hutch. And I think that was one of the things that got me really curious early on, was a really close mate of mine just talking about the the quality of his workspace, like how much he loved working at Hutch. And I was like, wait a minute, I want to, I want to talk to the people who were running this thing, you know, because we work in organizations all over the world. And, and uh, these stories of where it really works, where people can be both a combination of happy, incredibly happy and incredibly productive. Okay. Let's look at that. You know, anyway, choose over to you. Great. Well, you know, we could, I'm sure we could jump into the Hutch world like, and, and have a beautiful hour together. But I think we're going to take you back. I was intrigued. The very first line of your bio is following an early stint as a postman. <laughs> Over the last 20 years, Sean has dabbled in multiple industries. So, so I got to hear a postman story. But first, I would, you mentioned you were born in New Zealand. So we'd love to hear just a little bit about your early life you know where were you born what was that like right yeah however you'd like to answer that question where were you born and what was it like to be born there at that time yeah it's a it's a good question uh i got asked this yesterday actually with uh i'll be doing some courses about how to be a dad Mm. they asked me about my childhood and i got i got quite emotional but anyway i'm not going to get emotional on this one um because i'm going to give you the we'll see yeah we'll see Uh, (laughs) my mum was really young when she had me she had me when she was 15 years old and she was a single mom so i was raised by my grandmother and my aunties and my mum um they did an amazing job so i was born in christchurch new zealand uh, a long time ago uh, 1975 so i'm 47 years old i was born into a into a town that was 
have you ever seen ET and they've kind of got those suburbs that have been built? Yes. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of. When I I saw that recently with my kids, and I was like, oh, that's that's that reminded me of my home back in Christchurch because there were lots of sort of suburban homes been built, and I was climbing around them and things like that. So it was a lovely. Lovely, adventurous place. I remember my mall was being built and I climbed through the air conditioning units as I was still building it and got lost and it was loads of fun. Whoa. That's awesome. Yeah, so that was a that was a pretty interesting place. I was pretty challenging at school. I was quite disruptive. I couldn't sit still. But uh, my teacher, Mr. Robinson, brought a BBC Micro to school and I remember just being fascinated by it, playing games on it, coding on it. Mm. Um, I'd stay after school and play on it, and then my mum could see that I was just really actually into something, which was, I was really into running, and I was really into skateboarding, and I was into mm. computers. So I um, saved up, got my first computer, which was an Atari. It wasn't very good. Got another computer, Commodore 64. That was lots of fun, lots of games. And I just I had one of them, yeah. But my, my safe place was to really sit and hang out and play games on my own in my bedroom, and, mm. and it, it felt like a really just a man, a imaginative place because games were quite low quality, but my brain was was really fired up. And I think it's a massive misconception in in, in culture about games that, that they're bad for kids, but actually they're quite, for me, they were really nourishing and good. Mm. And it gave me lots of ideas and things like that. So went to school, left school, I think about 16. I was pretty out of control at school. I wasn't very, very good. I... Started a business selling games, which I then ended up working in a game shop. Computer games, computer games. So, so you, so were you coding those games? No, I wasn't coding those games. I was effectively stealing them. So, um, I have to admit, nice, um, awesome. But yeah, so, so I was making a living from it. But then I went back to the light side and I worked in a game store. And my first, my first big thing I did at that game store because it got taken over by a chain was I got the owner to buy like 1,500 copies of a game called Tomb Raider. And he was like, are you mm, sure? Mm. 1,500 copies of any game. But, but I, was, I made this massive bet that Tomb Raider was going to be huge. And um, we were the only shop that, that, that really had Tomb Raider. So um, I, was, I, was, I went down pretty well with that. Um, I'd made some future, future buying decisions that were pretty bad. So I learned from those, but ultimately I was a massive gamer, really into it and really enjoyed it. So, yeah, so, so I was doing that. I then got really sick. I had heart surgery at 20 years old. I had my aortic valve replaced. And when I came back from heart surgery, I was like, oh man, I couldn't sleep. My heart made it made a ticket. Mm. It was a crocodile swallowing a clock. So I, I actually was like set up all night stressing out and I kept BBC World Program, and I got really suddenly I got this real thirst for, for learning and the world, and I was like, man, my life in Christchurch isn't good enough. I don't want to work in a game shop the rest of my life, so I want to work in games. So I saved up a little bit of money, packed my bags, and and flew on my own to to, to the UK. Wow! And that's when I got the job as a postman. Ah, okay. That brings us up to the postman. I love it. Yeah, you know. It's- it was awesome to hear about your your mum and your aunts. Yeah, yeah, and um, and and just like then hearing, I mean, you very quickly went through a lot of history that has many phases and stages to it, right? You know, and uh, and ups and downs to it. It sounds like and, and ins and outs and all of that. But what what were your mum and your aunties good at, and and what did you learn from that that got you through all of that? You know, like because. 
you know, we we look to those adults in our lives, and and you know, we 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 pick up all of the good and the bad from them. Like we doesn't matter what our parents say, we copy what they do. You know. Yeah. And so, what, what were they good at, and what did you learn from it, and how did that help you navigate all of that pretty tumultuous beginning to your life? You know. Yeah. So the thing that my mum was most impressive was she had me really young. You know, she she obviously had some struggles raising me. Because I, like, I can't imagine being 15 and raising a child. But what she was really impressive about was she, she worked really hard, but she also went and studied and went to university whilst I was really young. And she, she basically taught me, you can do anything you want in life as long as you get off your ass and do it and focus on it. And I remember just being in awe of, awe of her changing my life and her life and going, going from working in... Like she was delivering fish and chips at one point. She was working in nurseries, picking flowers, which I, I ended up getting a job with her, picking flowers with her after school. And then she started working really late at night on her education. She got a degree in sociology and she, she got a full-time job, which we could then afford a TV, a fridge, like because we, we do live in, 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 in quite an impoverished situation. But she always provided for me. I always had a roof over my head, and I had a lovely. We lived in a lovely house. The the, the social services of New Zealand were pretty good. They they provided mum with a house to raise me in. I always had everything I wanted. You know, I probably wanted more BMXs than she could afford. But um, but you know, <laughs> it, it was she was amazing. She didn't really. She was really, really, really ambitious and focused on moving forward, and she was clearly quite smart, um, is still quite smart, and she did a lot for me in that respect. So my aunties were really good. They looked after me a lot. Yeah, my, my family situation, the coolest thing they also did is they brought us together a lot, so we had lots of Christmases. And, and wow. I, remember going, I remember going to great summer holidays in a place called Totranui, which was like a national park, golden sand, clear blue water. It was it was just really like, as a kid, you're just adventuring around, finding your own things. And I was insanely, I was an insanely sociable kind of kid. I would just make friends everywhere I went. I still do that as well. I can take me anywhere and I'll, I'll, I'll meet anyone and talk to anyone and find it. I really like finding out what makes people tick and, and where they're going and what they're doing. And, you know, I, I just love, chatting to people. So I've got that as a kid. I love that. And I feel like you've started to answer, but I'd love to hear, where did you find your sense of place or belonging? I mean, it may have been with games, but I'm like, as, as a kid growing up, and I actually grew up with a single parent who had me quite young as well. And so I like to ask, like, where did you feel like you belonged? Where did you find your sense of place um, growing up? Well, I love that because I'm witnessing it now with my own kids, but skateboarding was really really interesting as well mm. because it's not really competitive but you're also learning things and you're encouraging each other to 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 do better and anyone the greatest thing about the skateboard community when i grew up was doesn't matter what level you're at you're all welcome and you're all mm. really inclusive culture and i don't think adults always saw it that way because it was kind of counterculture as well because you're skate, skating down the street, terrorizing people. But actually, as a, <laughs> as a teenager, it was a really nice community where you looked after each other and got to know each other. Sadly, back then, it was very male-dominated. I've noticed now skateboarding really, uh, is getting a lot more diverse, which is really cool to watch. But for me, my place of blogging was hanging out with, with other teenagers, watching videos of skateboarding, reading magazines about skateboarding, playing games, and just generally just trying to 
just figure things out on a skateboard, which is just so much fun. And I remember being really young, being really unconfident and had low self-esteem. I used to skateboard at night because I didn't want to see other people see me skating. And, and I was skating at like three in the morning and this, this guy didn't notice he was on the skate ramp and he said to me, you're really good at falling off. Why don't you just do the trick? And I'm like, he was like the coolest skateboarder in Christchurch. And this was three in the morning. And he said, just drop it and do this trick. And I did the trick. And he just kind of like jumped up and down with me screaming because I did the trick. Because oh. he told me oh. to stop falling off. And then and he's like, why are you skating at three in the morning on your own? <laughs> Come oh. skate with me. So I was kind of accepted into this, into this sport oh. of skateboarders, which was, which, was really, which was really powerful. And, uh, and that's where I learned, I think, if you keep trying, you keep falling off, you get back on. Mm. And don't be afraid of trying in front of other people as well. So, um, mm. so all these sort of powerful moments as a kid. Right. Yeah. Other lessons from that period of your life? Like when you're talking about, you know, you've talked about different people who influenced you and the sense of belonging and the kind of like kind of in and out of school, starting a game, going legal, starting a company, going legal. Like, you know, like other lessons that you've pulled from that part of your life that you think are kind of foundational for you? I think the big thing is to um, is to really, and it's hard because I think it's easy to, in retrospect, to look back and think how good all this was. Mm. But a lot of the, like, sadly, a lot of my drivers come from my insecurity of not feeling good enough. Mm. Yeah. And I think I've met a lot of people who have the same sort of attributes. And living that insecurity is not very nice. So I, I lived quite, I, I felt quite unnerved a lot of the time and I felt quite lost. But actually just doing something and seeing the result of something was really powerful. But I could not sit down and study and learn and do tests. It just wasn't for me. And, you know, watching my own kids go through the, the education system and they are exhibiting some similar things. And it's really hard because I can't, I still can't tell myself, well, don't worry, it worked out for me. I still, I'm still trying to figure out for them how to, how to navigate and I, like, how do they find their, like their blogging and, and where they're at. And they've suddenly got to skateboarding, which is like super interesting. And, you know, that might be a thing that might not be a thing, but actually I am, I'm not sure I'm answering the question, but I think you need to do what you love. And like, I did mm. what I love. I did. I was either going to do skateboarding or games, I think. And, and, and like skateboarding was, was pretty tough on the body. But gaming for me was always, it's just, this, I, I did what I loved. I loved games. I loved how they made you feel. I loved what worlds they took you to. And I just focused all my energy on, on being inside making games. Mm. And I think what's hard is actually what, how do people find what they love and how do they then make all those choices around doing what they love mm. instead of doing things just for money or just for, do you know what I mean? And like, like I wasn't that obsessed with money. Like I was quite poor a lot of the time, but it's ended up coming to me because I did what I loved. So weirdly, I've just made a connection now that my mum was a union negotiator. So she was always talking about employment rights and better working conditions and I've just realized now, like, what a connection that is to the, to the environment I've created at Hutch, which I have a very employee-focused connection, right? Because I believe if you look after the people, they will return value back to the business. And also, if they're happier, society will be happier. So if we could all make happier, like, work environments, then, then society in itself surely would be better. 
That's an amazing little connection to make, eh? Between yeah, yeah. yeah. Cheers. Well, first, I wanted to ask you if you still skateboard, but I'm also interested in that. I think that you're right. I think a lot of successful people, the driver is like somehow proving something or worth or like kind of like this kind of movement to do. And I'm curious how much that still is your driver or do you have a different driver? Do you, do you work from a place of ease ever now? What is, has any of that shifted for you? Yeah, I think it's so interesting. I think when I sold Hutch, I had the classic depression of like, oh shit, I've got a sort I've got, I've, this still hasn't made me feel good. And mm-hmm. I've got, I can no longer keep pushing all the stuff in my head back and go, my life, you know, I've ticked that box. I've proven to everyone I can do something. Now I'm complete. And so the work continues. But what, what if I am becoming more confident and relaxed in myself, um, being able to do a podcast like this is a big, is a big deal. And I have done lots of interviews, but they kind of, you know, talking about yourself is, could be a lot harder, right? But talking about business for me is easier because it's fact. It's like, well, not everything's fact, but it's like, it's more numbers. So I don't know the answer to that question. I just feel like, I feel like I'm shifting to a place of stronger purpose. Like I'm finding things that I want to get involved in that have other elements in life that I'm really interested in. I've become a better father, more present, because I've been so distracted with achieving this thing. That like they've been neglected if I'm if I'm honest to myself, and I, I you know I'm quite sad about that. But you, you can't spend too much time being sad about it. You've just got to live in the now and do things. So I think that's where I'm at with it. But I, do, I just don't think it ever disappears. You, it's like a really youthful thing that's in you that that doesn't really go. Which is you find peace with it and you tend to ignore it. Or I'm not I'm not. I still take big risks, <laughs> like in business, mm. which is interesting because I think the risk taking element is like, well, if I do this and it really pays off, then actually, then I can prove to everyone that I'm I'm worthy. So that's still there. I don't know. <laughs> it's a really interesting question. Yeah. Well, that's great, and I think if if most of us are honest, we're all we're all still figuring out some of those core things will be with us through our life, and we'll just like we'll just work them right, and we'll. We'll move along, we'll move along the spectrum, but it's still like that thing we have to work with in our life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my 20 year old self, man, that voice was so much louder. And the, the voice now is just tiny compared to what it was. And it creeps in. Like every now and then I look at my team and the people I work with and I think, oh no, I'm not good enough for them. And it's just like, that's that. Mm. It's like, don't entertain it just do something to like, just keep moving. And I think that's probably natural. Yeah. I definitely thought when I first went into therapy, you know, I'll I'll do therapy and that'll sort it out and then I can be fixed and then I can just (laughs) get on with my life as a fixed person, you know, that's it. And it's just not like that, is it? You know, it's just like you, you do this work and you do this work on yourself. And as a result, because you're able to be in relationship yourself with yourself, or because I've been able to be in relationship with myself, my relationships with others others have improved. Like my ability to be in relationship with my kids or my wife or my business partner or my community or do you know what I mean? It's like I feel like the more I've done that work on myself, the more my ability to be in relationship with others has improved, if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That makes sense. So how's your how's your perception of because you, you essentially chose this career, right? 
you, you chose to go into gaming, right? You saved up the money. You moved yourself over to the UK. You became a postman. I'm assuming to raise money to then go into gaming. Tell us about that a little bit before we go, because I want to hear a little bit how, about how your perception of the kind of industry has changed. But like, just bridge that bit. So you get to the UK and you become a postman, but you'd saved up money to go get into gaming. What, what happened then? So, so what happened was I got to the UK. I didn't actually have that much money. I was trying to get jobs as a temp or like an office admin person. And yeah, yeah. I tried, I tried the week. I moved to Nottingham for three months and I got a temping job there working in the losses department of the electric, um, East Midlands Electricity Company, which was funny. So I was dealing with the losses that they were making. And I was just calling, it was grim actually. I was ringing out people saying, you haven't paid this bill and it's like someone's passed away. Anyway. So then I moved down to London and all the sort of admin jobs seemed to have gone because it was summer holidays. So lots of people had got all these, so there were no admin jobs. And then I found some agency that said, yeah, we can do, we can, we can place you in Royal Mail and you can do some deliveries for people that are sick. And that was actually loads of fun. That was fascinating. I didn't know London very well. I told them I'd been here for a year. I had an agency, <laughs> no Google Maps. And they're like, yeah, here's a van. It's got 70 packages. Go deliver it. It's in Covent Garden, which is a really interesting place. So I found it. I deliver, and I deliver everything. And I come back the next day and then pack the van. I deliver everything. And then the third day, they said, dude, you need to slow down. Like, no postman delivers everything. Oh. <laughs> and they've been delivering everything. So I went and had lunch with these guys. And they're like laughing at me, saying, oh, you're the guy that's been causing us loads of problems. <laughs> that is hilarious, Sean. That is hilarious. I love that. <laughs> but they were they were genu- genuinely the most lovely people, and I I just had so much time for like hearing their stories, and because it was English culture, it was like working class culture. It was like really listening and, and talking to them about stuff, and and then I basically it's just me like meeting up with another Kiwi friend, and then we went to a party, and then I'm. Somehow I got into a flat because I used that money to get into a flat and then got into a flat. And then I met a guy that said, oh, there's a job here, there's a job here. And I really want to get into, into gaming. I tried to get into gaming and the, and the agency said, there's no way you're going to get into gaming. You've got no experience. What do you want to do in games? I said, I want to be a project manager because I was relatively good at that in New Zealand. It's like, no, no gaming experience. And then the dot-com boom was just crazy. It was 1999. Oh, right. And right. I found a guy that got me an interview and they were basically giving everybody a job because they just, just needed people to do stuff. And I knew about the internet. I was quite savvy on the internet. I understood how to build HTML pages. I could do all that sort of stuff. And then I started working for MarksandSpencer.com, and that was loads of fun. That was crazy. Uh, that's where I met my wife. And uh, Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, I was going to ask wait. you about that. Yeah. No, you don't just get to skip past that bit. <laughs> Wait, that was that's not a one sentence summary. How did that happen? Uh, she was my boss or my client. Ooh, even better. So that was quite fun, and uh, that's an interesting point actually because she's she's working with me and I'm working with her. We're keeping it secret for six months, and then she's like, "Man, we both need to find a new job or something." And so, yeah. she's like, you, you love games. You've been doing the internet for four years. You love games. You should go into games. So I'm like. Okay, I'll, I'll start looking at games again. I've had I've had relevant four years experience in project management in the internet business. They came across a gaming company called Lionhead Studios, which I loved. This is like my favorite, one of my favorite games companies. And they gave me an interview, and I got the job. I was like completely Brilliant. shocked, mm. completely shocked. And I went and worked there, and it was crazy. The the way they worked was horrendous. They were working mm. twelve hour days. 
everyone's miserable, six days a week. At one point, I was working from 10 p.m. at night to 6 a.m. for about two months. But I really I created a lot of strong friendships out of that, that, that team that I worked with. But yeah, it was from meeting my wife that 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 we uh, that that we that we had this uh, this mad experience. It's funny that falling in love was one of the key reasons that you had, you ended up pivoting into the games. In I don't know, it's just lovely. It's just lovely, isn't it? That's just lovely that that happened that way. You know? Yeah, it's really cool. It's absolutely cool. Yeah. And then I worked for Lionhead Studios, and then we went snowboarding. And when I came back from snowboarding, this is after about two years, they didn't renew my visa, and I got kicked out of the country. <laughs> and so I went back to, back to New Zealand, where I was, like, super pissed off, like, oh, my God, I want to be in England. And then Al had got me a visa, a spouse visa, boyfriend and girlfriend visa, which took nine months. And that visa then allowed me to come back to the country. But I was like, right, I'm not going to work for this this company. I, and then I got a job at PlayStation. So that was fun. But th- this is where my my self-esteem was really getting funny. So I went and worked for PlayStation, and it was just really hard. Like, it was, it was quite an embedded culture of success. They'd been so successful. So you had these kind of tyrannical bosses that knew everything. And everyone else was an idiot. You just need to do things. And I got asked to lie about budgets, and and I had to like I had to stand up in front of people and say this is the budget, even though I know the budget was bullshit, and I hated it. Wow. Mm. And then the project failed, and everyone's like, "You're over budget." I'm like, "Well, I'm not really. This is the lying budget I was told to tell." And then I had a breakdown there. I had like I had about two weeks off. I couldn't sleep for four days over this budget thing. And I came back there. I actually recovered quite well there, and then. Then I had but, but my third project cancelled, and that's when I was like, I've had enough. I'm going to start my own company. And a really interesting thing happened. Somebody at that place at work kind of laughed at me and said, you'll never be able to make your own game studio. And that energy of that person is what well, I was like, screw you. I'm going to prove you wrong, mm-hmm. right? And Which is not a very nice feeling to kind of carry around. Well, it's, it's, it's not, but it's somehow when like, like – uh not feeling good enough actually can propel you. Yeah. Right? When someone tells you, no, you can't do something, like the demon the demon of not good enough can suddenly like drive you forward. I mean, I've had that experience in my life, people telling me I can't do something and me being like, uh, fuck you. Yes, I can. And then that, and bizarrely, that being one of the things that propelled me into some of the most beautiful experiences, some of the most exhausting, but beautiful experiences in my life, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and actually, I've been told you can't do something so many times. I love no, no skateboarding signs because that's the skate spot you really want to skate. It's because there's, ah. there's a reason it says no skateboarding because it's like got some something cool about it. But yeah, so yeah, I really I took that energy, and all we wanted to do was make a game. We weren't focused about making money at this point. Like, let's just make a game because I failed at three projects. Five years of my career there, I try. I applied for a job at Mind Candy and, and us two, and, and I remember the, the rejections quite clearly. Again, they were still being rejected from jobs, so I'm like, I'm going to make my own job. And it's, it's about taking control. It's about that, and it's you feel like like once you start a business, even though it's not even successful, you tell everybody that you start a business because you just feel this amazing sense of energy and freedom, and it's up to you and and. You can't be a victim to anything but just getting up off your feet. And I remember the the, the success bit 
was for me was if we launched the game, that would be success. Mm-hmm. Whether the business can go on or not, that, that's another question. So I kind of I prepared myself for failure, but the success was just going to be if we release a game we're proud of. And, um, and we were starting to look for jobs and when we were launching our first game and, and then we launched our first game and it, uh, we, you know, we were lucky but also quite driven and we did some smart things. And because I had the internet job, I actually understood the mobile space a lot more than the console space because I'd gone into console gaming. And the, the internet prepared me, the, internet, the, the e-commerce job prepared me for the future of what mobile was going to be. So all these things kind of stack up to being really lucky and awesome. Isn't it funny? <laughs> I'm really curious because I heard you talk about Lions Head games like that, that, the you know, overworking, right? Like, but you got some great friendships with it. It's Sony, like a failure, but it was a success culture. So like you got used to standing up in front of people and, and failing publicly even. So I'm really curious because I feel like I have two different thoughts. One is, is it always adversity that makes us like, I just like find myself like that has been part of my own narrative about my life is like resilience, adversity. I'm going to do it. Right. And so I just have a, a fundamental question. Is it always adversity that, that makes us? And then my, so that's one question I want to ask you, like, is that a, a belief or a narrative you hold? And if so, I find it to be a pretty hard narrative to carry through life. Right. Yeah. It's not good. Is it? But it, it weirdly, you see it in f- sport, right? You see these teams come back from nowhere and suddenly win, and it kind of it's kind of like a film. And I think the tropes in film exist because it exists with us. Like when your back's up against the wall, it creates decision making and drive and focus. But yet, I think there are some sort of muscles that you develop as a mm-hmm. young person that you. You and sadly, I've definitely done that to myself quite a few times. I've, I became this is really personal, but I became quite addicted to putting myself in a shit situation because I believe, like through therapy, I realized I became quite addicted to the healing process and yeah. right. putting myself out of the hole. And that's like crazy. Like, how do I stop that? Because actually, the bit where I cause myself harm in other people, like I've got to stop that. And um, and I'm I'm definitely doing that less and less in life. But you do, you get really hooked on it, and you get a buzz from it. And that's I think quite it's quite a sad part of our, our human traits, right? Our flaws. Right, right. <laughs> and so I just like I'm just thinking about that. like you know I don't want to be cavalier, but sometimes I think well what if what if life could be easier? You know what I mean? Like what if it doesn't have to be a struggle? And then on the other hand, I think I don't know how much you're in kind of there's a, a trauma discourse that's happening a, around a lot of social justice issues, right? Like things are traumatic and we have to heal from trauma. And while I find that to be incredibly positive, right? Like we need to understand and 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 I, I feel like we get stuck there and don't ever actually talk about the resilience that's on the other side of trauma, right? That's like actually we're more able to deal with bullshit because we've been traumatized, right? Like actually there is something it does and I don't have to go recreate it. So I have, so that keeps happening to me, but there is something actually quite uh, about the human condition that on the other side of trauma, like there is some capacity, ability, perspective that you would not have had, had you not had that trauma that we feel like we get stuck before that place. Mm. Right. If you have the capacity to process the trauma, Mm. right. If you have the ability to find enough peace in your life to make sense of it and then integrate the learnings 
because I, I definitely feel like my my relationship to my trauma from childhood was reactive for most of my adult life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's only really in the last five to 10 years that I've begun to integrate the lessons from, you know, what was a pretty traumatic childhood and early life into how I turn up as an adult. Whereas before, like you were saying, Sean, it just kind of drove me, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually, I haven't talked about him, but not having a father, it's so funny. So like in therapy, my mum my gets a lot of grief about things that she's done. My dad was never present. I met him once, met him for four days. He gets off, right? So he's kind of like, he's there in my head, but he doesn't like, so his lack of presence. And actually in the last five years, I've only like having boys, I've got two boys. Mm. I've really had to examine what a man is. Yeah. And then you, I've done some stuff on that. And it's just like, men are crazy. Like, sorry, sorry <laughs> to say that, that's a big statement. But like, we've, predominantly rule the world there's a lot of mistakes going on and I, I you know and like we is lacking so much integrity and mm. saying what we do and delivering on it and actually my vision of a man was a tough man that didn't talk mm. and it's only the last sort of 10 years i've realized no it's actually the guy that says you know what i'm going to do this and i'm going to you know i'm going to commit to it and do it and if I can't do it, I'll tell you as soon as I can that I can't do it, right? Whereas like my experience of of a father was like not that. And so if we want to make a better place, and sorry to drift off to the subject, but I'm really no, you're right. You're right on topic, mate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really passionate about it. It's just like we've got to stop the bullshit. We've got to start taking responsibility, and we've got to um, start having integrity. And it's, it's it's been really powerful to learn that because I think so many men, uh, boys go to become men but they never sort of mark that sort of phase of it and they don't get you don't get taught it right right because it should be integral if we're in a tribe it would be right and and it's just not so because we're in this modern world where everything just moves so quick and we we, i'm suddenly an 18 year old wandering around the world so Mm. yeah well, I mean, I, I feel like you're talking about it, Sean, but I kind of want to pin you down to it. it. It sounds to me like your conception, your understanding of leadership, however you understand that, from being a father, you know, to leading in a successful organization, to being a founder and an entrepreneur, to being a, a man that is turning up in a world where it is largely patriarchal, right? Certainly in the cultures you've been traveling through and working within. So it sounds like your conception, your understanding of leadership has changed yeah. over your life. And and I'd love to hear a little bit about like, well, can you just like nail that down a little bit? Like what 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 is, how is your conception of what it means to be a good leader changed? So that's, um, yeah, that's a fascinating question. So I originally thought... I needed to be Steve Jobs to the point I think I actually bought a black polo neck sweater. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Great. And I hated presenting in front of the teams because I was pretending to be someone else that I wasn't. Right. And the team could tell, and I didn't enjoy it. Right. So I had to learn to be myself. I had to work out who I am and, and why I matter. And, man, I did, I did some really painful things in life, and I did a lot of work on myself as well. So I'm not going to bring those up but and that's when I discovered all the stuff about what kind of leader do I want to be and I realized actually I'm not a designer an engineer in the early days of Hutch I definitely had an impact on what kind of games we made but now I really trust the team 
And that's that's just such a joyous thing to watch them do. They did things that I thought were so stupid that were going to bankrupt us. And that ended up being the first sort of $100 million game. And that's when you start to realise wow. that we don't join companies to do – well, there's an idea that people just join a job just so they can sit there and take the paycheck. I think most people want to do something that betters themselves and learn from it and grow. And that's when you start trusting humans to, to want to do great work – then they actually, and you pr- provide an environment where they can do great work and they can do it without fear of failure because, like, being creative is riddled with failure. It's riddled with challenges. Mm-hmm. You get things wrong. And, like, we've had, we've done 12 games and I think about three have really failed and, like, six have done okay. But three have really, really worked as well. So, so creating an environment where I'm not going to, I'm going to stand up in front of them and say, you know what? I made a decision that would invest this much money into this thing. It completely failed. We've had to raise more money. It means everyone's getting diluted, but we've got backers that believe in what we're doing and believe in the value that we're building. Long-term wise will pay off. And by owning it in front of everybody and telling everybody I've made a mistake, allowed the rest of the business to be really honest about the mistakes they're making so that we can all learn from it. And you don't really see politicians doing that, right? Nope. No. Nope. You do not. And that's why we see the cycles of mistakes, and like, and it's so it's such a shame. But that that for me was so inspiring. Like watching the team then go right. I'm going to try this thing. It's quite risky. I'm but I'm going to make the best best of it that I can, and then it pays off. It's like wow. Or if it fails, it's just like don't worry, we've got you. Mm-hmm. you know, what we learn from it, what we tell the rest of the team, and then the whole organization learns from it. And they don't have any sense of shame because they tried their best. It's not because mm. they had. They're just, everyone's trying their best in a really competitive, hard environment. So I think, I think that's what that bit's really helped me as a leader and being a better man as well. Well, that's actually right where I was going to go or ask you about is if there was a link between your leadership and masculinity as you explore what it means to be a dad and a man without models. I think like we're really clear there aren't a whole lot of healthy models of masculinity in the patriarchy. You know what I mean? Like, <clears throat> so I'm curious if you actively think about or if you can make a connection between your leadership and the kind of man you want to be or, or even healthy masculinity. Yeah, I think... The big thing for me is about listening and trusting because quite a lot of problems I think appear when you when you make a big assumptions about stuff and you jump to conclusions. Well, I see I see fights on trains kick off from just two men looking at each other. Mm-hmm. There's some mad primal thing going on. So, you know, I've gotten to really horrible disagreements at work that I've not been proud of. And I've always come away going, I wish I'd listened a bit more. You know, I, I react quite quite a lot. So, but I don't know. I just think integrity is probably the biggest thing that we that, that, that masculinity needs. Such an interesting word. Like I was wondering the other day, feminism for me is, has quite a lot of positive vibes to it, right? as in like what, what the movement is about. And, and actually masculinity, like what's the opposite of feminism? Is it masculinism? I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> right. I don't know. No one ever talks about it or knows because there's so much negativity about men, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and well, not negativity about men, but there's we've we've we haven't had our rights needed to be protected or surfaced because we've had we've been ruling the world. So so it's such a fast it's fast, like no one knows about it. Like you know feminism, but the, the opposite must be mas- masculinism. I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> 
I would say, and what would that look like, right? Yeah. If we were, if we were talking about, you know, men's full actualization, right? Which is in some ways what feminism is. What is men's full actualization? And it might mean things like listening. It might mean turning toward your responsibility, right? And like taking it up in a big way. It might mean like how walking forward with integrity, right? But we don't actually, you're right. We don't talk about that. Right. We talk about, you know, how, yeah. It's fascinating. So, yeah, I, I think integrity is so interesting. So I learned, I used to say, I, I don't know if I should say this on this just in case my friends hear this, but I used to like say yes to everybody that asked me for a drink. And now I have to say no because I don't have enough time. But it's like what I would do is say yes, but already know that I'm going to say no five minutes before I'm about to meet them, which is really not good. Right. And, and so integrity, that's very small scale of it, letting your friend down for drinks. And the large scale of it is actually is being honest and truthful and doing what you say to the best that you can in 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 the world, right? And I think I think that has lacked a lot in politics and it's lacked a lot in uh, leadership and business. Uh, and, and what I learned in business, which is really exciting, was if I help people without any sort of scoreboard of of thinking, well, if I help you now, you'll help me later. There's this really magical, weird cosmic thing where people start helping you out it's just bizarre mm. and there's a kind of there's the difference between being being mercenary versus being missionary and like i like the world of missionary because it's just so much more giving and altruistic and and stuff i'm sorry if i'm off track but you're I'm- not off track what what you're talking about is i mean what i'm hearing you talk about is uh you know what's the type of leader that you want to become What's the type of leader that you think is needed in the world right now? And you're talking about that specifically in the context that you own, which is like a middle-aged white man. And I think it's a big question. I mean, you know, the, the people who listen to this pod are, you know, everything from senior leaders, CEOs, executive directors of very large international organizations, all the way down to kind of grassroots organizers in communities who are making things happen through to people who are initiating initiating change processes in very, very complex institutions, you know, I mean, all of them. But, but I think everybody's in this question of like, well, what's the type of leadership that's needed? Because I'm looking around. I'm looking around and I'm not necessarily seeing it modeled to me on TV. I'm often not seeing it modeled to me on sports fields either, you know, like in the realm of obvious entertainment or the personalities that are easiest to reach. You know, it's not it's not easy to find people who you want to become, you know. So we have to start asking ourselves, right, well, who do I want to become and what's the source of that? And, and how do I choose that rather than I'm just buffeted towards it by all the forces that are playing out in my life, many of which I have no control over, you know? So I really like where you're going. And I kind of want to be like anything else. Like what, what kind of leader do you want to become? What kind of leader do you think is needed in the world right now based on your experience of life so far? I, I think the hardest thing that we have faced as leaders is this kind of this bit where you have to kind of, I don't, I don't want to use this word, but you have to, like I had to show utmost optimism and certainty where we're going is the right thing. And you kind of lose yourself in that because the team don't know that you're about to run out of money in two months' time and you're busy trying to raise the money. So you kind of, it's really strange, you kind of slip into this Don Draper world where you like, 
like you're pretending that everything's okay, but you know it's not. Mm-hmm. So how do you like how do you balance the integrity with that? And actually, if you think about people on this podcast listening to it uh, are trying to do big things to change the world, and they kind of have to saying like, believe in me, invest in me, invest mm. in what we're trying to do because it's going to change the world. But deep down inside, they might be going, shit, is it really going to work? Right? <laughs> yep. So I, I want some language to sort of cover that bit, which is like your intentions are really good. Like they're, they're amazing. But actually, oh, I, I, the, there's a bit, and I really died in that bit of, of Hutch. I just really had to pretend everything was okay and it wasn't. And I, that's why I really lost myself. But I came out of it. Not because we did better, but I just dealt better with like telling people everything's okay, but also being honest and actually telling the team, you know, this game hasn't done very well. We don't have that much money. <laughs> it's, like, it's really weird, right? And it's like once you give people information that they need to know, they can actually do things for the business. And I'm not telling telling you to tell them what the bank balance is and the run rate is, but but you have to be honest with everyone at all times about what's going right and what's going wrong. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really hard. <laughs> right. Well, it's everything we're taught not to do in leadership, right? Which is like admit vulnerability, admit kind of even admit risk, right? It's like, just be, you know, be courageous and clear and certain no matter what. And Tim will laugh, but I have to bring this up because you use the word integrity so much. And so I just want to say oh, one of the... Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> One of the books that is like just had me on fire, but mostly her thinking has had me on fire is um, Dr. Martha Beck wrote a book called The Way of Integrity. And what's great about this book is it's not like, it's not about like the actions you do in the world and how people perceive your integrity. It's actually about that internal compass that you've been kind of referencing over and over. And, and her, her, her definition of integrity is like, think what you think. <laughs> say what you feel, feel what you feel and, and say what you're going to do, right? Like, it's just like super clear. It's not about kind of any outside, right? Barometer. And when you just said, you know, tell, tell people what's happening, you don't have to give them all of the gory details. It's like, that is integrity, right? It's not, you know, it's not some ideal of how we'll be in the world. It's actually going from our own compass, right? And moving from there. And even, and I thought about it earlier when you talked about, you know, you did what you loved, even that is a kind of integrity. So, right. So I'm just like, so I wanted to share, you know, Dr. Martha Beck, the way of integrity, because I just feel like you're just like, you're just talking about so much of what she's talking about, but it is a personal practice of integrity. It's not what it looks like to other people. And it's a good audio book too. It's a good one to listen to. Like if you walk or run or anything like that from what, you know, yeah. I mean, you you might just be a reader too. All right. Well, we're going to bring it to a cl- one more question before we kind of bring it to a close, you know, and, uh, you know, because we've looked back and we've talked a little bit about kind of where we're at. And, and, and um, you know, if you were, and, and you've talked about the lack of integrity you see in politicians or in leadership in general and how in many ways, you know, you're seeing that and really examining your own leadership. But like if you look into a crystal ball right now, what kind of change do you think is possible? And you can go to this at any scale you want. You can talk about the world at large. You can talk about your industry. You can talk about your organization. You can talk about yourself. But just an opportunity to kind of reach into the future a little bit. And Matt, like, what, what kind of change do you think is possible that's on the horizon? You know, what do you see? What do you see? Yeah, I think 
I'll, I'll talk about two things. My industry is rapidly changing and it's amazing to watch. So mm. like I joined when working, I mean, it's, I hate to say it's a bit of a middle-class problem, but it was, working conditions were pretty bad. People were working, because they were working in a passion industry, they were getting exploited for their time and not paid very well. Now the industry is paying really well, training really well. It's getting a lot more diverse. It's, it's, it's really, it's just really amazing to watch because it, it's always been a misfit industry and I've loved it for that. Not everyone's always needed a degree, but it's, you've needed to have a lot of passion and um, and talent. So this, this industry is just, I think it's going to get to a place where people see it as the most incredible industry to work in, in terms of um, like making entertainment and its impact is, is getting bigger and bigger. I think it's like 3 billion people are playing games. Um, it's the world's biggest entertainment thing. You know, I've still very rarely seen content that really does reflect the world yet, but it's changing. So it's, it's so I really think we will start, there'll be things where it's like in that game, that thing happened. And it can have an impact and, and hopefully a, a, a positive one. In the world, it was so interesting watching the, I think it was the Finnish leader getting harassed about her dancing, which was so strange and so much, to- it's a bit like, have you ever watched that film, Don't Look Up? Mm-hmm. It's like, we've got the war in Ukraine, we've got like COVID, we've got like, you know, like cost of living crisis and yet we're focused uh, headlines about, about how, how a leader dances. I think... I think the future, we could actually have leaders being real human beings and being able to make real human decisions and kindness and stuff like that. So that's where I, the more and more these things happen, the more and more they become normalized. And um, I don't, I, you know, I want, I want human beings to run, to run the world, not, not these robots that think they're, do you know what I mean? I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want leaders that think they need to lead a certain, a leader way that's like, like not human being. Like once, and I'm really, this is really ambitious and I really hope it happens, but I want really actual humans running, running, running the world and making good decisions. So thanks, Sean. No worries. <laughs> so one of the things, I guess I feel like I also just want to say to our listeners, right? You've, you've been uh, featured several places recently talking about this four day work week that Hutch has moved to, you know, you, you're active in thinking around gender justice and parity in the gaming industry. Like there's some things that we didn't get to today that I think if folks are intrigued by what they've heard, please go look up Sean, but to finish up, we'd love to ask kind of like, what's keeping you going these days? Is there a a quote or a poem or something you, you know, pull out of your back pocket that kind of keeps you moving forward. My favorite quote that really tickles me and really makes me smile. And I'm smiling now is my youngest son, Luca told someone, and I don't remember who he told, but he said, my dad is crazy, but he's not stupid. And there's just so much in that sentence, which I absolutely love. And, and like, that's right. That's where I'm like, yeah. That's why I am. Um, I might be crazy, but I'm definitely not stupid. So thank you, Luca. I love it, Sean. <laughs> Sean, it's been a total delight to have you on the pod, mate. And, and, and just thank you for being so open and willing to go on this little journey. I mean, we could have done a normal pod and, and, and pulled out so many of the incredible things you're involved in in your business life. But, but for you to be open and willing and allow us to get under the hood and a little bit into the story of what creates the conditions for the type of leader you've become. It's been a real gift. So like, thank, thank you for the time and and the uh, and I choose the word deliberately and the integrity you brought to the conversation today. Mm-hmm. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, no, thank you for your time and uh, I'll hopefully see you in Nova Scotia soon. So. 
Oh, awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> nice. Great. Thank you so much. Take care, friends.